church family, I'm not sure if you noticed in your connection card, but just wanted to point it out to you that um, currently we sit at our Lottie Moon Christmas offering at $72,541, and so praise the Lord for that. I know last week we were about 200 off in attendance at this campus because of the weather, and so we didn't quite uh, reach our goal, but I'm confident that after today we'll probably be well above our goal, so thank you for uh, your heart for giving to missions. Larry Stewart of Kansas City passed away in 2006. He was known as the secret Santa. Before he died, he would go at Christmas time to places like Goodwill, thrift stores, places where people that might be in need at Christmas might be, and he would randomly pass out $100 bills as the secret Santa, not revealing who he was, just giving them out. The story goes back to the 1970s when Larry was a young man and he was hungry and he was ho homeless. He was in a small town, he wandered into a diner, and in that diner, um, it was obvious the condition he was in. He said that a cook came from behind the counter and came out to the, the register area and bent over as though he were picking something up and had a $20 bill in his hand and he handed it to Larry and he said, here son, I think you dropped this. And uh, Larry was able to eat, and he resolved that day that when he had the ability, he would take care of those in need. This was long before he made millions in telecommunications. He started out when he had a little bit by handing out $5 bills at Christmas. Then he moved on to $20 bills, and ultimately, he was handing out $100 bills at Christmas time. Before he passed away, as he was preparing to die, he asked several of his friends to continue his legacy as the secret Santa and today if you read about secret Santa if you were to go home and google secret Santa you would find that there's about a dozen of them spread out across the United States most of them are CEOs of corporations and they give out at Christmas different things to those who are in need Larry's gifts at Christmas as secret Santa he gave away over two million dollars during the years that he was a secret Santa now that cost him a lot to give those gifts away at Christmas. But let me remind you at Christmas, it pales in comparison to the gift that God gave, is God gave everything. God gave His Son for us. We're in a series entitled Christmas Lights. A light is something that illuminates the darkness some, so that you can see something that you would not see were it not for the light. A few weeks ago, we looked at the Christmas prophecies primarily in Isaiah, but in some of the other Old Testament prophets where they talked about the, the coming of Jesus, sometimes a thousand or more years before Jesus actually stepped foot on earth. And then last week we looked at the Christmas preparation, John the Baptist coming and, and announcing, is preparing the people for the coming of the kingdom of heaven in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ. And today we're talking about God's presence. Who here has finished your Christmas shopping? I mean, like three of you. The rest of you are in trouble. I was reading this morning on a website called Investopedia, which is an, it's an investment website. Um, it helps you understand investments. And, and they estimated that 720.89 billion, with a B, dollars will be spent on Christmas presents this year. Now, that's a lot of money. Look at your neighbor and tell them, that's a lot of money. I mean, it is. 
that, that's a lot of Christmas presents. Take your Bible and open it to John chapter 3, a very familiar passage. And we're going to look at God's present this Christmas. God's present this Christmas. John 3, beginning in verse 16, we'll read down to verse 18. I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God bless the reading of His Word. Go ahead and be seated. Anne Graham Lotz, Billy Graham's daughter, calls John 3.16 the North Star of the Bible. The North Star of the Bible. Uh, in early days, sailors would use the North Star as their reference point to find their way home. And the reason she calls this the North Star of the Bible, she says if you will align your life with this one verse, you'll find your way home to heaven. If you can understand this one verse and align your life accordingly. Now, there are a lot of philosophical trains of thought on how you get to heaven or what what is heaven like or is there a heaven and this john three sixteen in that single verse many of those isms are dealt with for instance atheism says there's no god right jesus responds for god he affirms God the Father. And then fatalism says that God's personally not involved, that it's just fate. Whatever happens, happens. It's kind of the picture of a top. God got the, the world spinning, and then he just kind of sits back and watches what unfolds. That's fatalism. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, for God so loved. Then there's racism. Racism claims that one's ra one race is better than others. Jesus said, for God so loved the world materialism tells us today that the one who dies with the most toys wins it's all about accumulating things and yet jesus says for god so loved the world that he gave legalism says that oh there's a heaven and you can go there but you earn it by being good you just have to do the right things jesus said for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him universalism says we're all going to heaven we're on different paths different roads but we're all ending up in the same place jesus said no he says forever whoever believes in him the son of god pessimism says there's no hope life is hopeless jesus says i beg to differ for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish there's your hope Humanism says there's no God. This is all there is. This life is it. When you die, you cease to exist. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal or everlasting life. Vance Havner, the great preacher of yesteryear, he calls these isms. He says these isms ought to become wasms. In other words, they're not true. We're not saved by a philosophical ism like humanism or fatalism or anything else. 
We are saved by the grace of God through faith. Let's talk about God's presence this morning. First of all, God's gift is incomparable. It's incomparable. There's nothing that compares to us to it. The idea of God giving us a gift is often repeated in the scriptures. Romans 6:23 tells us that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 8:32 says he he who spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Isaiah 9 Verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And so repeatedly we see through Scripture this idea that God is going to give a gift. Anybody here ever diagrammed a sentence? That'll just bless you. I mean it will. I remember my first week in seminary. I signed up for Greek. And the teacher said, by the end of the week, we're going to be diagramming sentences in Greek. I sat there and thought to myself, I can't even diagram a sentence in English. I dropped that class as fast as I could get to the registrar's office. That's a true story, all right? Um, but when you diagram a sentence, I found out that, that every sentence has a subject and a verb. In John 3.16, the subject is God and the verb is love. For God so loved he loved the world the god of the bible is love first john 4 8 says god is love when it says for god so that word so is a grammatical term to show the intensity of the verb you know i used to tell my kids i love you this much and and i would stretch out my arms as, as a way of intensifying the what i was communicating to them that that i love them a lot and and so jesus adds this word so so that we would understand the depths of god's love you know the ancient cultures had a had a uh, god for everything they had a moon god a sun god a god of war a god of pleasure but none of these gods as, as i studied them none of these gods ever it was taught that they loved humanity now they could be used or manipulated by humanity to gain what humanity wanted but but it wasn't taught that they loved humankind but there is one god the one true god who loves man sometimes when we translate from the greek or the hebrew into english i've shared with you that we translate it one way for convenience sake for understanding but Sometimes it's not the best or, or, or most accurate way of translation. For instance, in John 3.16, there is a definite article before the word God. If you go back and read the Greek, there's a definite article there that we leave out because we do so to try to, to give understanding to the verse. But I personally am convinced that the definite article ought to stay in there because I, I think it is better translated, more accurately translated what Jesus was saying so if we add it in, it says, For the God so loved the world. See, it makes more sense because there is only one true God. And when you include the word the in front of God, we get the understanding who Jesus is talking about. Talking about the God. We have a friend in, well, 
Let me t- first, before I tell you about that Hannah, let me tell you about another Hannah. Hannah Kyle Peterson of Ontario. A month, well, about five weeks before her wedding, she was in a car crash. Broke her pelvic bone in three places, fractured some ribs, had a concussion, had partial uh, hearing loss. But she was, deterred, she was undeterred. Nothing was going to stop her from celebrating her wedding day. And, and so on her wedding day, this is a picture from her wedding day. That's her father in the background. He pushed her halfway up the outdoor aisle in a wheelchair. And her fiancé, Stuart, came and picked her up and carried her the rest of the way to the altar. Here's what she said. She said, obviously, being in the wheelchair and not able to walk was very upsetting for me on my wedding day. She sat for most of the ceremony, but there was one important part of the ceremony she wanted to stand, and that was the exchanging of vows. You can find a picture of her standing there, and it says, she says, it was hard to stand that long, even with Stuart holding me up, but it doesn't seem obvious in the pictures and the video the pain that I was in. She's now recovering, and she walks with a cane. Stuart's been by her side the whole time, and, and she said he's been strong for both of us. Now, why do I tell you the story of Hannah Peterson? Because we were crippled by sin. We could not make our way to God, and so God made his way to us and carried us the rest of the way by his gift through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we cannot stand on our own. The only way that we stand in Christ is by God holding us up. God's gift is incomparable. Let me tell you the second thing. God's love or his love gift is immeasurable. Yes, every sentence has a subject and a verb, but most of them have objects as well. And so the, sub, the subject is God, the verb is loved, and the object is the world. For God so loved the world. Now Jesus wasn't talking about planet earth when he said God loved the world. He's not saying God loved this planet. He's saying that God loved the people who make up this planet. God loves humanity i read there are 7.7 billion people alive today if we were able to line them up one by one and everyone passed in front of god god would say the same thing to everyone i love you i love you because he does we don't ever have to worry about the fact that god loves us john 3:16. for god so loved the world that he gave what did he give You know the verse. What did he give? His only begotten son. Now, that word begotten is not a word that we typically use in our everyday speech. It's an interesting word. It's the word monogene, which literally means one of a kind. So in other words, it says that God so loved the world that he gave his one of a kind son. In other words, there is nobody like Jesus. Never has been, never will be. He gave him. What did he give him for? Listen, friend, he, uh, the, Jesus did not die for a limited atonement. He didn't die for the few, the elect, for the righteous. The scripture teaches he died for the sins of the world. Isaiah 53, 6 is a beautiful prophetic uh, word from the prophet. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That means I have gone astray. You have gone astray. Nobody is exempt. Nobody is excluded. Every single one of us here have gone astray. We've sinned. 
against God. That's why Paul says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But there is another all in Isaiah 53. See, I, I didn't read to you the whole verse a moment ago, but I want to give you the whole verse now, Isaiah 53.6. All we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, talking about Jesus, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God's gift is unlimited. It's immeasurable. Every man, woman, and child has access to the gift of God. That's why Peter said in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth there is not a single person in hell today or no one who will ever end up in hell who will have the ability to say i wanted to be saved and god said no i wanted to be saved but god wouldn't let me every person who ends up in hell and who's in hell today will have to say god sent his son so that i wouldn't have to be here but I rejected, I did not accept the gift of God extended to me through Jesus Christ. And so I have nobody to blame for being here but myself. I'm amazed at how many through the years, you know, I've been pastor almost 30 years, and uh, amazed at how many people that I've met that think they have sinned too much to be saved. Think, think their sin is too great. Oh, I, Think about this. You read the Gospels. Who did Jesus seem to be attracted to the most? Oftentimes, it was the most sinful people. It wasn't, it wasn't the partial sinful. In fact, Revelation 3 tells us that the lukewarm make God sick. Jesus was attracted to the most sinful, and they were attracted to him. In John chapter 4, the woman at the well, she comes out at noontime, because she's embarrassed. She's, not, she's had five husbands. The man she's living with now is not her husband. She didn't come in the morning when all of the other women drew water because she knew her sin and she knew folks were talking about her. I think it's John 4.4. 4. It says Jesus tells his disciples that he needed to go through Samaria. Why did he need to go through Samaria? Because he knew he was going to meet this woman at the well. She was the most sinful woman in that community. And in that conversation, she was drawn to Jesus. And Jesus spoke to her and she ended up bringing the whole village to christ in luke 6 jesus is at simon the pharisee's house a woman comes in she breaks an alabaster jar of perfume and puts it on jesus's feet she she washes his feet with her tears and dries his feet with her hair the scripture tells us she was she had public sin we we don't know for certain what that was but most believe that she was probably a prostitute. She was drawn to Jesus. Simon rebukes Jesus for letting this woman of ill repute wash his feet. And Jesus rebukes Simon. Luke 19, Jesus is passing through Jericho. 
No doubt there had to have been some people who were fairly righteous in Jericho, some people who were doing their best to walk with God. You would think if Jesus was going to stop for a meal, he would have stopped at their house. But what does he do? He goes to the sycamore tree, looks up, and he sees the tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. The tax collector would have been the greatest sinner and the most hated person in town. And Jesus was drawn to him. And Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down because I'm going to your house today. And he comes down by the, and Zacchaeus was drawn to him. By the time the encounter is over, he tells Jesus, if I've stolen, and he should have just said because I've stolen because everybody knew he had. But he said, if I've stolen from anyone, I will repay them four times. Could go on and on. Matthew, one of the apostles, was a tax collector before Jesus called him. John 21, Peter. Peter has denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times, said, I don't know the man. And of all of the disciples who get to preach Pentecost. See, Jesus was drawn to Peter partially, I think, because of Peter's sin. Peter was drawn to Jesus. Jesus restores him. And I would have chosen another disciple, one who didn't verbally deny me three times. But Jesus, in his wisdom, chose Peter to preach the sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Why do I give you these examples? Because there are some of you today who probably think, man, I have sinned too much to be saved. I'm telling you that if Jesus were here, he would be drawn to you. And you would be drawn to him. And you would leave changed after you interacted with him his gift is immeasurable it's for anyone everyone it's for whosoever will his gift is incomparable god gave his one of a kind son let me tell you the third thing god's gift is inherited now by inherited i'm not talking about from our biological parents because god does not have any grandchildren God only has children. Everyone has to come to a personal understanding of their faith in Christ on their own. You're not born into the family of God because your parents are Christians. You have to be born again. So what do I mean by inherited? Paul says in Galatians 4, verse 4, When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons and so we get the inheritance because god adopts us into his family that's why romans 8 paul said this you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear but the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out abba father the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of god and if children then heirs heirs of god and joint heirs with jesus christ and so we gain an inheritance. The gift is an inheritance because God adopts us. There's not anybody in here who deserves heaven. We don't deserve it. It is unmerited and undeserved. We can't earn it. We're not good enough for it. We can't buy it. Titus 3, verse 5, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. Now, I know a lot of folks, and I'm guessing there are probably some of you here today who are trying to earn your way or work your way to heaven. You don't recognize that's what you're doing, but that's what you're doing nonetheless. Some people say, well, I'm a church member. I give. I live by the golden rule. I do unto others as I want them to do to me. I've been baptized into the church. Now, 
A Christian ought to do every one of those things, but every one of those, none of those things make you a Christian. Listen, friend, um, I'm not a Christian today because I'm a pastor. I'm not a Christian today because I tithe. I'm not a Christian because I share my faith. I do all of those things because I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian today solely by the grace and the mercy of God extended to me through the Lord Jesus Christ. For by grace you are saved through faith in Christ and Christ alone. You ever heard at a funeral? Some folks say, well, they've gone on to their reward. You ever heard that? Now, I, I, I get what they mean, okay? But theologically, that is an inaccurate statement. Because heaven is not a reward for the righteous. It is a gift for the guilty. Now, there are awards. God does give rewards. There's at least five crowns in the New Testament that it speaks of God handing out. But heaven is not mentioned as a reward. We get to go to heaven not because he's rewarding our righteousness, but by his mercy and by his grace. I mean, when Jesus saves you, you get it right then. When you call on the name of the Lord and ask him to be saved, the Holy Spirit comes to, when you ask Jesus into your life, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you right then and there. It doesn't happen when you get baptized. It happens when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. John 5, 24, Jesus said, Most assured, I say to you, he who hears my word, believes in him who sent me, has everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but look at this, but has, past tense, passed from death into life that's why paul says i have been crucified with christ it's no longer i who live see when you accept christ you die to self and you get eternal life right then and there eternal life is not something i'm going to receive when i die eternal life is something i have right now because of jesus john 1 12 as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of god to those who believe in his name that word received again picture of a gift for the folks who are trying to earn their way into heaven jesus said in matthew 7 he says many are going to say to me on that day lord we cast out demons in your name we prophesied in your name very orthodox very active and and jesus is going to say to them he, he says i will say to them depart from me you doers of iniquity i never knew you it's not that they had salvation and lost it they never had it but they were religiously active, and that's why I'm saying that, that there's some of you here today who are probably religiously active, counting on something that you're doing to get you into heaven when nothing you can do will ever get you into heaven other than accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. You know, it's tragic when somebody lives a blasphemous life and dies and goes to hell separated from a God who loves them. We've all known people like that that just live horrible lives. They blaspheme God, they blaspheme God's people, and they end up in hell. That's a tragedy. But what is a greater tragedy is when people sit in church pews Sunday after Sunday and never give their heart to Christ, never truly are born again and go to a devil's hell separated for eternity from a God who loves them. Timothy Keller, Presbyterian pastor and prolific author, one of his books about Christmas, he writes about the receiving of presents. He points out that it's challenging to receive some gifts. Now, he's not talking about fruitcake here, okay? Think about it. It's challenging to receive some gifts. 
For instance, he said that, that some gifts by nature, if you accept them, you have to swallow your pride. For instance, if somebody at work gives you a present and you open it up and it's a diet book, to accept that gift, you have to swallow your pride. Or if one of your family members gives you a book and it's entitled Overcoming Selfishness, to receive that book, you have to swallow your pride. Here's what he said. If you say to them, thank you so much, you are in a sense admitting I'm indeed overweight and obnoxious. So some gifts are hard to receive. Because in doing so, you have to admit you have a flaw, you have a weakness. Friend, there is no gift that is harder to receive than the gift of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because if we receive it, we have to admit that we are so horrible, so wicked, so evil, that there is nothing good in us that would deserve eternal life, that it costs God His very Son for us to have eternal life. We have to swallow our pride to receive that gift. Back in East Tennessee, you, you ever had financial trouble and somebody helped you out? You have to swallow your pride when that happens, don't you? I remember on a, it was a Saturday morning and I was driving. We had a white Pontiac transport van. And I was driving it from our house to the church. It was only about a mile, mile and a half. And to get there, I had to drive on a two-lane road and there were no shoulders on the road. I mean, if you stopped, you stopped in a lane. And I remember about halfway there, the oil gauge on my van starts doing this. Do you remember Lost in Space? Danger, Will Robinson, danger. And so the, there was a gas station, a BP station, about a quarter mile away, and I thought, man, if I can just get into that BP station, I'll pull over and I'll find out what's going on. And I almost made it. The oil pump had went out on the van, and the engine froze up. Had to be replaced. The kids were small. Thought, man, what, what are we going to do? No way I can afford to do this. That Monday, a man by the name of Jim Willis, and Jim and I weren't even very close. Jim comes into my office and he says, God told Judy and I that we needed to give you this, and he handed me an envelope with $1,000 in it. You say, well, it ought to have been easy to receive that. It wasn't. Because to receive that, I had to swallow my pride. You know, man ought to be able to take care of his family, right? And so I had to admit that there was a need that I had that I couldn't meet. And that God was going to use Jim and Judy to meet that need for me. So I swallowed the pride and I received the gift. And friend, that's what we have to do with Jesus. We have to swallow our pride. Admit that we are sinners and ask him to save us. The other Hannah, Hannah Smith is the daughter of our friends David and Robin Smith and eastern tennessee and robin used to work for me and their daughter graduated last year and so she's a freshman in college she got a perfect 36 on her act get your mind around that i took the act twice and i don't think both scores added together equal 36 i'm not kidding okay um i don't know how somebody gets a perfect 36 she got that 36, and she applied to the University of North Carolina, and they sent her a we're sorry letter. 
how do you get a 36 and a school tell you we're not going to accept you as a freshman? She applied to Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt said, we're going to put you on a waiting list. We're not going to take you, but if somebody else doesn't come, we'll take you. Again, a perfect score. Now, there are a few of you here who are going to rejoice over this, and my friend David has had to eat a little bit of crow because his daughter's now at the University of Alabama on a full ride. Alabama took her in. So his bleeding orange now has a certain crimson tint to it um, because they're paying for his daughter's education. Now, why do I tell you about Hannah Smith? Here's why. Guys, there are none of us, when it comes to God's test, there are none of us who come close to a perfect score. We got a few fives in here, some tens. There might even be, with the most righteous widow, somebody in their teens. But we all fall woefully short. If 36 is the score of perfection, we all fall woefully short. There's only one who ever scored a 36, and his name is Jesus. There's only one who was ever perfect. And, and so, see, we don't gain admittance based on our score. We gain admittance based on his score. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he, made God, he, God, made him Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. So when, when I stand before God, he's not going to see my pitiful score. He's going to see Jesus' perfect score. Because he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Friend, you can test and test and test and add up all the scores and it'll never be enough. The only way you'll go to heaven is by receiving the gift of God through Jesus Christ. One last thing and I'm done. God's gift is ignored by many. The saddest thing about the Christmas present of Jesus is it's ignored and it goes unclaimed. Imagine you go out and buy a very expensive gift. You put a lot of thought into it, and you buy an expensive gift for your spouse or your child. And with great delight, you wrap that gift and put it under the tree. And you can hardly wait for Christmas morning to come. And the gifts are being opened, and that gift is left under the tree. It seems as though the spouse or the child that you bought it for is completely uninterested in it. They could care less about that gift. Would that hurt your feelings? Sure it would. I mean, if it was an expensive gift that you put a lot of thought into, it doesn't matter if you, even if it's an inexpensive gift. If you wanted to give it to them and they don't want it and, and it act like it's not even there, it's offensive. I tell you that because I want you to imagine the pain that God feels when so many ignore the expensive gift of His Son. They don't claim it. God sent his one and one of a kind son. Why? Because he loved us. He watched that son die a horribly cruel death on a cross for us. And yet at Christmas, many people talk about everything but Jesus. The heart of God, I think, grieves today as people ignore the gift of his son. I think his heart aches probably for some of you here because you've never genuinely received the gift. Oh, you, you may have been baptized and joined a church or whatever, but you've never really been born again. You don't know for certain if you were to die today that heaven would be your home and you've not really seen any change before Christ and after Christ. And I think it grieves the heart of God because you've never received the gift of eternal life. So how do I receive that gift, preacher? Well, the first thing is you've got to admit you're a sinner. 
you got to own it. The other day, or, or yesterday, I was at South Warren refereeing a basketball game, and man, I, I could, you ever have one of those times when your brain just goes to sleep, you see something, and yet it, you don't process it? I saw this kid from Logan County push a South Warren kid out of bounds. Coach is looking at me. Had one of them brain moments. And so I blew the whistle because he's out of bounds and gave the ball the other way. I run by the coach. And he's like, are you kidding me? Did you not see that? And uh, one of the next times down the court, I was able to stop in front of the coach. And I said, coach, you're right. I missed that, man. I'm sorry. What did I do? I owned it. I, I blew it. And so I owned it with the coach. You know what he said? Thank you. We were fine after that. You have to admit to God that you've blown it. You've got to take ownership of your sin and say, God, I am a sinner and there's nothing I can do to save myself. Second thing you've got to do is you've got to believe that Jesus paid the price for your sins on the cross. That when he was on the cross, he was taking your place. Because God is holy and just, somebody has to pay for sin. Because you're a sinner, somebody has to pay for your sin. You either accept what Jesus did at the cross, or you're going to have to pay for your sin when you die. Friend, that is a price that you cannot afford to pay. So you admit to God, you own your sin, you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your substitute, then you personally receive him as your Lord. It's not enough to intellectually believe in Jesus. James, I think it's chapter 3, maybe verse 16, he says, you believe in you believe in God, great. Even the demons believe and tremble. See, they, they intellectually affirm there's a God, but their faith is not in him. You have to personally call on his name. Romans 10 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You have to claim the gift for yourself. Some of you, I think, know that right now Jesus is knocking at your heart's door. You've never personally repented of your sin, but you can follow these three steps and be born again today. Wednesday morning, I found myself in Dallas, Texas, and I was headed back um, from a meeting of the Southwestern Tr Board of Trustees at my seminary, and um, they sent, American Airlines sent me a text message and said, your gate's been changed. So when I got to the airport, the first thing I did is I looked at one of those monitors to make sure the gate was still the gate that it was supposed to be, and it was, and so I went to that gate, and on the sign, it said Nashville, and I said, okay, I'm at the right gate, and I watched a pilot get onto the plane. Looked out the window and I saw the plane. Now, I believed that that plane was going to Nashville because the sign said Nashville. I believed that that pilot had the ability to drive that plane and that plane could get me to Nashville. But it wasn't until I boarded the plane, took my seat, buckled up, and that plane was going down the runway on the point of no return that I had finally put my trust that that plane was going to bring me where I needed to go. Friend, you can do a lot of things, but it's not until you personally accept Jesus Christ. That's when you put your trust in the salvation that God offers. Jesus really is the reason for the season. Let me close with one more story. September 3rd, 1939, German troops invaded Bilsko, Poland. 15-year-old Gerda Weissman and her family survived in a Jewish ghetto until June of 1942. In June of 1942, the Nazis had had enough and they began to round them up to send them to camps. And that's when Gerda was 
torn from her mother, Helene. Her mother was being sent to a death camp, and Gerda was being sent to a concentration camp. She would spend three years in a concentration camp. Towards the end of her internment, she was taken on a 350-mile death march. The Nazis were trying to, to have all of the, the ones in their custody die off, but somehow she survived the death march. A few weeks later, when she was liberated from a camp, she weighed 68 pounds, a 68-pound skeleton of a girl. Remember, she's by now 18 or 19 years old, and she weighed 68 pounds. But hers is one of the greatest love stories ever told. The soldier who liberated her, the U.S. soldier who liberated her, was a lieutenant by the name of Kurt Klein. Gerda would marry Kurt Klein, the man who liberated her. In Boston at the Holocaust Museum, there are six towers, and five of the towers serve as monuments to the, to the death and destruction that happened at the concentration camps. But the sixth monument contains a little short story that Gerda penned. It's a short story entitled One Raspberry. I want to read it to you. It's just a few sentences. She wrote, Ilsa, a childhood friend of mine, once found a raspberry in the camp and carried it in her pocket all day to present to me that night on a leaf. Imagine a world in which your entire possession is one raspberry and you gave it to your friend. The measure of a gift is what you gave up to give it. One raspberry, she wrote, isn't much unless it's all you have. Then it's not next to nothing, it's everything. The same is true of $2 billion or two mites. Big dreams often start with small acts of kindness. Now listen to this. She says it's powerful when we're on the receiving end, but it's even more powerful when we're on the giving end. Why do I tell you that story? Because today, if you receive the gift that God extends to you in Jesus Christ, He didn't give just something he gave everything and it truly will be wonderful for you to receive it but luke 15 verse 10 tells us there is joy in the presence of the angels of god over one sinner who repents i used to translate that that the angels rejoiced but then i got to really looking at what the verse says it doesn't say the angels have joy it says there's joy in the presence of the angels. See, the reason I don't think it's the, the, the angels is because they've never sinned, so they don't understand grace. They have no concept of how you and I are being allowed into heaven. And so who is it that understands grace? It is the Lord God. And so I believe that when one sinner who repents, it is the Lord God himself who rejoices. It's, better, it's good to receive, but... It's even better to give when you give your all, and that's what he did for us. And today, if you will give your heart and life to Jesus Christ, I believe God the Father would take great joy in that. Father, I pray now for our time of invitation. I pray for those who are here who quite possibly have never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ to be their Savior. All oh, they have a form of godliness as Paul told Timothy, but they deny the power thereof. They are not living a way that shows that they have been born again.
bought at a price. And so, God, I pray for them today. I pray today that they would swallow their pride and admit that they have a need that they can't meet. And that only Jesus would meet that need and they, they would receive the gift of eternal life. May it be so, Lord Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen.